right, good morning, everybody. So that video was a minute and 27 seconds long, and you saw 200 faces. Did that surprise anybody? It's a lot of faces in a, in a minute 27, isn't it? So, so, so what do you see? And when I think about that, I think about sometimes what we see um, determines how we approach someone or whether we do approach someone, right? Because of what we see just by looking at them. And it says something in our mind and heart about approachable, not approachable. But I think about when it comes to sharing the gospel of Christ, I'm so thankful that there are people who see through God's eyes when they're looking at people. See through God's eyes. And I think about our missionaries. And Mike's going to talk a little bit later about Jonas, who's in Ethiopia. But I think about Martha Wade. What was it that she saw through God's eyes? She left the United States, the comfort of the United States, and she's been 40 years over in New Guinea. Well, she sees things a little bit differently maybe than I do. And I think about um, the Powells, and why did, why did they leave here and go to Ukraine? Because they, don't, they see people as an opportunity to share the gospel of Christ and how important that is. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series called Conversion Factor, and uh, if you're a guest with us today, we want to say thank you. We appreciate you being here so much. We're thrilled that you're here, um, and also we want to welcome those who are online joining us. But we've been doing this series called Conversion Factor, and we're looking at the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, where it starts the beginning of the church in the first century. Jesus has died, Jesus has resurrected, Jesus has ascended, and he said, go, make disciples. And so we see the church unfolding in that first century, and we see what is happening. It's an exciting time. So we're going to be looking at that. So uh, I read a story this week about a pastor who had a pastor friend who actually took a church in Tehran, Iran. And he and his family were there during what they said was revolution, revolt, rioting. They saw all of that happen. And the government during their time there ultimately closed this small struggling church that they were pastors and there were very few members, but the government came in and they burned all the Bibles. They burned all their Sunday school and teaching curriculum. And then they took a big padlock and put it on the door of the church. And they kind of wiped their hands and says, Aha, we have closed Christianity in Iran. But Tad Stewart, who was the pastor there, said him and his wife decided that the church may be closed, but our home is open. And so they started inviting people to their home on Sunday mornings. Now, they did this in a, a very strategic way, and people would start, when it was dark, coming to their house at different times strategically uh, so that no one would kind of know what was going on. And uh, the church started to double. Then the church started to triple, and people smuggled in Bibles, they says, as if they were like pure gold. And Tad said when he opened the Bible and read it, you could have heard a pin drop. But suddenly, passion and faith broke out in the church, and soon it made a huge impact, not only in that community in Tehran, but also in Iran and all over the Middle East. Now, when I hear that story, it reminds me of a truth that it took me a while to understand, but I've heard over and over again. Historically, during times of persecution, the church grows. Now, when I hear that, I go, how does that happen? But people are converted into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They become a part of the body of Christ, the church of Christ. And as a re result, the church has grown exponentially through history in spite of and seemingly almost because of the persecution that happens. Now, does that seem weird to y'all? 
It does to me. It's like when people are scared, they don't talk. They don't want to meet. They don't want to get in trouble. So they back off and the church would die out. That was the intention of those people in Iran and all throughout history. But it's not what happens, is it? Because the Holy Spirit is present. That may seem odd to us, but the reality is, is God is always working. Always working. We just sang about that, right? God is always working. He's wanting to bring people into His saving grace. And Jesus told Peter one day, He says, The gates of hell will not overcome my church. And think about it. Over 2,000 years later, y'all, we're sitting here because of all the awful things that people have done throughout history to try to stop the bride of Christ. It has not happened, has it? And it will not happen because it moves on. And so today we're going to continue this series, Conversion Factors. And we're going to look at some factors that were a part of bringing people to be followers of Christ that we read about again in the first century church in Acts. Now we've looked at the second chapter of Acts when on the day of Pentecost, Peter and the other apostles were waiting for what Jesus talked about, this Holy Spirit that would come, the counselor that would come. He promised this. And it came in a supernatural and a powerful way and showed up that day. And through that supernatural power and speaking through uh, Peter in an amazing sermon, over 3,000 people were converted that day. It was an amazing time. And then a few weeks ago, we heard Jonathan share with us from the 8th chapter of Acts, which we're going to look at again today, uh, about the Ethiopian uh, official in uh, chapter uh, 8 and how the Holy Spirit worked through Philip and through other factors to bring this man to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it was a powerful thing. So before we read our text today, I want to give a little background about Philip that we read about today. Now, in the New Testament, we hear about two Philips. The first Philip was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. Some of you may know that. Maybe you had to memorize that in Sunday school at some point. But some of you may go, I know Jesus had 12 disciples, but I didn't know Philip was one. If you've been watching The Chosen, anybody? Philip is a great character uh, in that that series. I, I really like him. But anyway, out of those 12 disciples, Philip is a different guy that we're talking about today. He is Philip who would be known later as the evangelist because he went out and evangelized all over the world according to Jesus' great commission. But he was one of the original seven. You're like, okay, original 12, original seven. This is crazy, okay? But let's go back to Acts in chapter 6. And there was a situation in that early church where there were widows who were supposed to be taken care of in Jerusalem. Well, there was a little bit of a a situation where the Greek-speaking people who were, you know, Christians, they were saying, I think our ladies are being neglected. And the Jewish people were saying, no, we're not neglecting. But, well, they sure feel like it. So there's a little bit of tension there. So the elders and the leaders got together and said, wait a minute. The main thing is, is these women need to be taken care of. So they decided to get these original seven men and said, we want to get you together. We believe God has called you and we want you to take over this specific ministry to see that these widows are cared for and not neglected. And Philip was one of those seven along with a guy named Stephen. You may remember Stephen. And so after Stephen's death, which was a tragedy, an awful thing, he was the first martyr of the early church. The church, Luke tells us, and we'll read about in just a few minutes, was scattered. In the first four verses of the eighth chapter, we will hear this word scattered twice. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear scattered, I think a Waffle House. Anybody else tracking with me? Like, yeah, thanks for making me hungry. (laughs) But I think of scattered and covered and maybe smothered or whatever, chunked all that in there. But I I think about that, scattered. You know, those hash browns on the grill are scattered and you put stuff on them. I think about that. Well, after the death of Stephen, 
which was a horrible tragedy and the persecution that was happening to followers of Jesus clearly caused this scattering. Christ's followers were scared. If they're going to do that to Stephen, if they're going to do that to, these, to, to those who follow Jesus, we could be next. We've got to get out of here. We've got to scatter. But according to biblical commentators, there were two words for scatter in that early first century in the Greek language. And the first uh, word for scatter was the idea of scattering in the sense of making something disappear like ashes. You throw ashes and they just kind of disappear after you scatter them. But the other word has the idea of scattering in the sense of planting or sowing seeds. You've ever done that? It's thrown out seeds. And we think about, at least I do, Jesus telling that parable of the seeds where he was scattering the seeds and that seed was going to go and it was going to be planted and it was going to grow up in some way. But this is the word that's used here in this text about it's a scattering of seed. There's something more than just scattering. It's, it's going to land somewhere and something's going to happen down the road as a result. So in, in the first chapter of Acts, Jesus clearly told his followers to look beyond Jerusalem. The church isn't going to stay just in Jerusalem. It's going to go out into Judea. It's going to go out into Samaria. It's going to go into all the earth. And again, we're sitting here today, y'all, because people actually followed through the power of the Holy Spirit what God called them to do, and that's make disciples. The resulting good of the spread of the gospel leads some to see this persecution that was happening as the will of God. God can and will use pressing circumstances to guide us into His will. Sometimes we have to be taken out of our comfort zone in order for God to do what He wants to do in our lives. And we will clearly see that God uses these situations to grow His kingdom. Now, it doesn't seem like the way to convert people. It doesn't seem like the way to bring people into a, a relationship with Christ when they're scared to death that they could be persecuted or even martyred, right? When you think about that. But this scattering of people allowed the good news of Jesus Christ to go from beyond Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria, just like Jesus had commissioned his disciples to do. And so though they were scattered, they were covered by the power of the Holy Spirit to scatter these seeds to new places into new people. And that's what was going on. The Apostle Paul in that first century would write a letter to the Romans in that first century who were Jesus' followers. And it's, just, it's and I'm telling you, Robbie has been um, out of town on vacation. So this is an act of the Holy Spirit that this song and just connected with my sermon today. Okay, And that happens sometimes. It says, for we know that in all things, didn't we just sing that? All things work together for the good. Didn't we just sing that? Well, that is from Romans 8. For we know in all things, good and bad, disappointing and joyful, God works for those who love Him and been called according to His purpose. Now, I'm going to come back to that later, but we're going to look at our, our passage today from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, and that's up there for us, or you can look on your Bibles or personal devices. But listen to what Luke says. Luke is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and Luke also wrote this account of the early church in Acts. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. With, for with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Now we're going to stop right there and kind of unpack that a little bit. So you notice in the first part of this text, we hear a name Saul, the first time we hear about him, and he's persecuting the, the church. And it says that he was dragging people out of their, their houses and having them arrested, both men and women. He's persecuting the church. This is part of what was causing people to scatter. And he was actually present at Stephen's stoning. He may not have thrown one of the stones, but we read in Acts that he was holding or at the feet of him were all the roads. People took off their clothes so they could throw stones at Stephen till he was dead. Do y'all realize that's what happened? Because of someone's faith. And he was there approving of this. Not like, hey, you guys shouldn't do that. No, he's like, this is great. We need to get rid of people like this. Can you imagine? That's who Saul was. And so as this persecution broke out, Jesus' followers felt compelled to leave Jerusalem or we're going to be next. But Philip is one who left Jerusalem, one who had scattered. But in our text today, as you notice, he's not scattering to hide. He's not scared. He's going to proclaim the Messiah to this place in Samaria. Now notice the factors as we have read through this involved in the conversion of these Samaritans. The gospel of Christ is actually shared with outsiders. So Philip is Jewish and he's going to Samaritans. Now we, if you know anything about the Bible, uh, Jews and Samaritans have always had some tensions. Have you ever known why? We just know they didn't like each other. Was it a different culture? Was it a different race? Why was that? Why, why was I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on that. So back in the Old Testament, you remember Israel broke into one point of their history into a, a northern kingdom where Samaria was the capital and in the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was the capital. And they really existed as two separate nations and they warred for many years. But ultimately, God was disappointed with this and the northern kingdom got taken over by the Assyrians. And when the uh, during that time in history when a, a country took over another country, another people, they would leave the poor and the uneducated in that region and they would take all the educated people and rich people to their region and, and intermingle. And then they would just let whoever wanted to come into that old place and, and, and intermingle. So in Samaria, those people uh, were just there. And all of a sudden these other foreigners came in and they knew they weren't supposed to intermarry, but they did anyway. But some of the people that left stayed pure and then... A little bit later in history, in the southern kingdom, Jerusalem got uh, ransacked um, by the Babylonians, and they took a bunch of people off, the rich people. You think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all those people got carried over to Babylon, and then they left the poor. And so some of those people tried to stay pure to being Jewish, and they didn't intermarry, but others did, especially in that northern kingdom. And so later, after the exile, if you remember... Um, a guy named Nehemiah, who preached a sermon series on at one time, and Ezra went back to rebuild the temple. And there were these Samaritan people who had intermarried during this 70 years of exile. And now there's all these half-breed Jews. And so they says, hey, we want to help rebuild in Jerusalem and the temple. And the pure Jews that came back go, no, no, you're not good enough. You're a half-breed now. You didn't stay true, so you can't be a part of this. 
And so when you hear from somebody that they're not, that you're not good enough to be in their group to help do something when you're offering your help, how's that feel? How's that feel? It's like, what are you talking about? I'm not good enough. What do you mean you don't want my help? And so that's what created this tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. Now, I think about the kids as a result of this, right? They were just born into this. It wasn't their fault, but they were treated as if they were second-rate citizens. And so this created tension all the way up into this first century. And I say all that to say Philip knows he's going to a place where there's this tension. Like, what are you doing here? You here to make us feel bad and tell us that we're not good enough unless we become like you? But there was a background some, some background foundational work that had been done before Philip ever stepped foot in Samaria. And it was a guy who did that groundwork for him, and his name was Jesus. You remember Jesus one day was going through Samaria, and wisely Jesus sent the disciples to go get groceries because they would have screwed up this whole thing with the woman because they had that prejudice, you know. So he goes, yeah, yeah, go get, get groceries, okay, I'll get with you later. And he sat down at the well and he had this conversation with a Samaritan woman and she's like, uh, why is a man talking to me in public? Why is a Jewish man not only talking to me in public, but why is he asking me for a drink of water? And so Jesus and her have this very amazing conversation and she realizes he's a prophet. She, he, she realizes he knows everything about her life, but he lets her know she's valuable, she's worthy, and that God loves her, and that his kingdom is for her as well. And as a result, she leaves and runs, leaves her water jar there, and she runs back and tells everybody, I just found this man who says he's the Messiah, and he told me everything about my life. you got to come meet him. And they came out and go, who is this guy? Why is this Jewish man here in our region? And he stayed two days, and he taught them about the kingdom of God, and many people believed in Jesus. So Philip, although there's this tension between Samaritans and Jews, he's going, but Jesus has laid the groundwork. Some great groundwork. And so when they hear this Jew's here, but he's talking about Jesus, they go, he's not trying to make us Jewish, he's trying to make us Christian. And they were ready to receive what he had to say through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's really neat if you think about it. So Jesus has laid this this groundwork for Philip, And Philip has this great, and and you notice that it said people saw the signs he performed, but they listened to him because, wait a minute, he's talking about Jesus, not Judaism. He's talking about Jesus and the kingdom of God. I want to know more about that. And I wonder if that same lady is there and is going, this is great, because they know this Jesus has created a lot of controversy. He'd been there before, but they know in the last few weeks he had been crucified on a cross Then he was buried and there was this controversy still going around the region that he rose from the dead. And they're going, what is going on? Tell us more, Philip. Who is this Jesus? And apparently whatever he said through the miraculous healings that he did, he cast out demons to show that he had the power of God. But it said there was joy in this great city, not only because he was doing these miracles, but also they were... They were knowing that we are valuable to God. We are going to be a part of his kingdom. He has called us to be a part of that. They heard and they saw. And what they heard him say and saw him do connected with him. And there was great joy in the city. And then Luke tells us about this guy named Simon who's an interesting character. He had lived in this region. He had wowed people for years with magic, with sorcery. He could do things that made people. It was more of a sleight of hand kind of trick. And, uh, but people were drawn to him. And so it says that sometime he had practiced and people said that he had the great power of God. And uh, it says that he boasted that he was someone great. So here's another conversion factor here. People were drawn away from this Simon guy to Philip. 
Why? Because Philip's words were authentic. And he had power through the miracles. But he wasn't pointing that power to himself. Who was he pointing it to? To, to, to Jesus. He was pointing it to Jesus. And people go, this is different. Simon's trying to get the attention. This guy's not. He's pointing everybody to Jesus. He can do powerful things like Simon, but he's not pointing people to himself, which was amazing. So Philip was pointing people to Jesus and the kingdom of God. But verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip not only preaches about this, but he says, you got to make a life change. Bury your old way of life and be resurrected to walking with Jesus now. And so they believe that. And Simon's going, what is, what is this guy doing? He's taking over my territory. What is he doing? But he can't argue with the results of what's happening, life change in people's life. Have you ever seen that? Maybe you're skeptical of someone who says, oh, so-and-so became a Christian. Maybe you went to high school with him and go, yeah, whatever. You know, I know that guy. What do you mean they become a Christian? But all of a sudden you see that person. You know Chris, right? Yeah, exactly. He has a great testimony. But when people actually see Chris from where he used to be to where he is now, he goes, yeah, something happened. I don't know what happened, but something happened, and Chris is not who he used to be. And it's because of Christ. And that's a great thing. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we can clap for that. Yeah. Now y'all want to hear his story instead of the rest of my sermon. But that's another time, man. That's another time. But we are skeptical but until we see it. And some of y'all know people and you go, I don't know what happened to them, but they're different now. And it's a good different. But Bible scholar N.T. Wright talks about the analogy of waking up in the morning and talking about conversions. And he says this. He says, some people come to Christ through a dramatic instant conversion, like an alarm clock going off. Um, and some come to Christ through a gradual progression to know who Jesus is. And y'all know this is true. Maybe that's true for you. Waking up offers one of the most basic pictures of what can happen when God takes a hand in someone's life. This is N.T. Wright, still uh, writing here. He says, there are classic alarm clock stories like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, blinded by a sudden light, stunned and speechless, discovered that the God he had worshipped had revealed himself in the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. John Wesley found his heart becoming strangely warm, and he never looked back. And he says, they and a few others are the famous ones, but there are millions more. And then there are many stories and they don't maybe make the headlines in the same way as like some of those others of the half-awake and half-asleep variety. Some people take months, years, and maybe even decades during which they aren't sure whether they're on the outside of Christian faith looking in or on the inside looking around to see if it's real. Does that connect with anybody? Think about that. He goes on. As with ordinary waking up, there are many people who are somewhere in between. But the point is that there's such a thing as being asleep and there's such a thing as being awake. And it's, an import, it's very important to tell the difference and to be sure you're awake by the time you have to be up and ready for action, whatever action may be. And I think, man, isn't that a great illustration? I mean, N.T. Wright is brilliant anyway, but I just thought about that. Some of us... You know, our, remember the old alarm clocks? It was just, you know, just like you get up, your heart's racing. And I'm thankful for the clock radio. Or you know, like, they just slowly get my song going, or hear my scores in the morning coming over the radio, nice and slow, and gradually wake me up. But isn't that the way it is with with conversion? Sometimes 
Sometimes it's an alarm that wakes us up and somebody has an amazing story of how God transformed them. But somebody else goes, no, I felt like I was on the outside looking in and it's taken. And some of you today are sitting there and maybe you're on the outside and you're kind of, I'm trying to figure this stuff out about Jesus. Some of you are seemingly in the inside here at church, but you're still going, is this real? I mean, people go through the motions and sing these songs and they listen to the Bible and all that, but is it real? And God is doing something in your heart and your mind today to try to bring you to that conversion experience wherever you are. So as we look at that text today, you may wonder, why do we need to know about what Philip did in that first century? Because I want us to see the importance of waking up and carrying out what God has called us to do in the world and make disciples. Now, you don't have to go overseas. Sometimes it's walking across the room, walking through your office to another cubicle and say, hey, man, could we have lunch? I want to talk to you. Maybe it's walking to and sitting with somebody else in your high school or your middle school and say, hey, could we talk? And there's a risk involved of being rejected, all of that. And probably the hardest nut to crack is our own family, isn't it? But we need to sit down and say, I need you to hear my heart. Try to take out all my flaws and listen to what I want to share with you about Jesus. There's a risk there. But we're not to, to be scattered to hide. We're scattered to scatter the seeds of the gospel. Even during difficult times, God is working for the good. Remember I said we'll come back to this task, to this text. For we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So this persecution that was taking place, and now we see what was happening in Samaria, as a result of the death of Stephen and the persecution, people are learning the name of Jesus. Now, something horrible happened yesterday, y'all, in Buffalo. I'm sure you've heard about it. And I'm just going, what in the world? Why does this keep happening? But here's what I know, y'all. Some good stuff is going to happen out of this. Now, if you just had your loved one shot in that grocery store yesterday, you're going, please help me here, Craig. What good is coming out of my dead brother, sister, mother, father, friend? But I promise you, God is going to do something powerful, and I anticipate hearing of something amazing that God's going to do after. I know it's horrible. I can't imagine. But always when something like this happens, we see that God is true to his word. We know in all things, God works for the good, and something good will happen out of this. Now, going back to that verse, if you hear that verse... And you think for a minute today, whether you're here or, or watching online, that this doesn't apply to you. Somehow you slipped under the radar and got born into this world and God didn't create you according to his purpose and for his plan. I want you to reconsider that thought because he did. You may think God has only chosen other people to do his work. You may think you're a, a free agent or an independent creation and you're kind of doing your own thing and God just isn't really paying attention to you in your life. If so, you would be misunderstanding, first of all, the sovereignty of who God is. And second of all, you'd be missing out on that he has a plan, not only for the world, but for you specifically, and it's in your identity in Christ. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. In the Old Testament, we're told that for a purpose, God's purpose. And then in the New Testament, Paul tells us that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance. That means before you were born, before I was born, God had a list for you. This is what I want you to do. I know who you're going to marry. I know how many kids you're going to have. I know what you're going to do for a living. I know you're going to do this, this, and this. But this list is why you were created. And man, when we connect with that list, there's a joy, there's a meaning in life that's, that's an amazing thing that God wants us to 
understand. You and I may not understand that now, but we need to understand that all things work for the good. When we grasp it, life doesn't necessarily become easier. But when we grasp that, it gives us this perspective of the meaning and purpose of life, of what happens in our life, whether good or bad, whether crazy or wonderful. We know there's a perspective that God's in this no matter what happens. And it helps us hopefully anticipate what God's going to do. And that's why I can say, as crazy as it may sound, I'm anticipating some amazing stories that are going to come out of this buffalo thing. Because I know God is sovereign. Texas pastor, a guy named Jim Dennison, while he was in college, he served as a missionary in East Malaysia. And while he was there, he attended this small church. And at one of the church's worship services that summer, a teenage girl came forward to announce that she wanted to be a follower of Jesus Christ and be baptized. And so they took her confession, they baptized her, there was a lot of celebration. But during the service, Dennison noticed that in the worship center, over to the corner against the wall, was this old, there's some several um, bags of luggage that were just sitting against the wall. And he asked the pastor, he goes, what is this luggage doing in here? And he pointed to the girl who had just been baptized, and he said, her father said that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again. So she brought her luggage with her. Think about that for a minute. She brought her luggage. She knew it was going to be risky to become a Christian, her own family would say, don't come home. But she was willing to pack her bags and say, I know God has got me covered and he's going to send me to where he wants me. He's going to do something powerful in my life. That young lady was ready for what was next, wasn't she? She had woken up. She was ready to be scattered and she had her luggage ready. And that's the way Philip was. He had his luggage ready. Even if he was scattered, Philip knew that God had him covered with the power of the Holy Spirit. And wherever he went, he could use Philip in a powerful way. He did it in Samaria. And when he left Samaria, Jonathan preached to us a few weeks ago where he went to, he said, go by that chariot over there. And he went. Now, Mike's going to talk about our ministry in, for Grace for All in Ethiopia today in a little bit. But Jonas, who is our, our missionary there, who runs this orphanage, Grace for All, I asked him one day, I said, Jonas, is that true? Is there a connection in your culture and your people from that early first century church to that Ethiopian official coming back and bringing the message of Christ? He said, absolutely. We believe that with all our hearts. And I say that, y'all, because sometimes we think, oh, these are just stories in the Bible to make us feel good. No, these are historical people who did what God called them to do in their lives, and they did it, and it transformed the world. Jonas is a Christian. Jonas has grace for all because of what Philip did in the life of that guy. He listened to the Holy Spirit. That's powerful, isn't it? That's amazing when we think about it. So how about us? How about you today? Are you ready? Is your luggage packed? Are you ready? And again, it doesn't have to be overseas. If God does that in your life, that's awesome. But maybe he's asking you to go across the room or across the office or make that phone call, or send that email, or make that text. What is it? God's asking you to do that. So this morning, as we always do, we want to offer an invitation. Maybe there's somebody who has been looking uh, from the outside in and is ready to make a decision today. Maybe somebody's on the inside looking out and trying to see if this is real, and maybe you're ready for a decision. I don't know that, but I'm absolutely convinced that God's working on all of our hearts right where we are to try to bring us into a relationship with him. So today, if you need to make that decision, we're going to offer that invitation to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to be baptized into him, or if you're looking for a church home. Y'all, we are not perfect, but we're committed to being that church 
that goes and makes disciples and allows God to use us in the world to bring people to know his saving grace.